This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. everyone hello 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 i open every podcast the same way but until i find out another default intro you're gonna keep hearing that shit for the foreseeable future so three podcasts released today hopefully i get this right and this is the third one released i still am skeptical on how um, i'm doing this with anchor but <coughs> still sick still recording in the same weekend and need to catch up on what i'm delivering in terms of my content so We've already talked about technology, we talked about big problems, we talked about all this other stuff, and I kind of was thinking, you know, around this time, you know, with some COVID restrictions lifting, with all the other, you know, shit going around where, you know, people are doing more stuff, they're going out, this is a good thing, you know, because people are meant to be kept inside and doing nothing all the time and everything like that, and they're too focused on the latest price of Bitcoin and all this other shit with working too much, whatever. Um... We're going to start going out and doing shit and, you know, buying stuff and going to restaurants and spending time with people and doing fun things and doing shitty things and seeing fun people do all this stuff. And it's it gets to an ugly place where I think we can, you know, compare ourselves to people very much too often. It's the Jordan Peterson rule, compare yourself to who you were yesterday and to who someone else is today. It's a very impossibly hard thing to do on a constant basis. But I think, you know, in terms of your mental health and sanity, I think it's one of the most necessary things you can do. So... Last summer, I saw this happening. Obviously, we're a year removed from last summer, and you know, obviously things have not changed. But I thought last summer was going to be very much a you know coming out party for you know the the three four ish months that we were in COVID lockdown time. And I, at least in Boston, I wasn't correct. A lot of other people, like places like Florida, places like Texas, where you know a lot of people are going out, they're doing shit, they're doing living their lives like normal people. I was like, okay, this is probably going to happen again where people are going to go out, people are going to feel the same problems with social media, the you know everything else that you know is going to do with all the stuff. So I decided to write about it to not only blast it out to you guys and to everyone else, but to mainly just for myself and kind of working through these type of problems in order to really enforce them on the side of what I believe the best thing to do is. So wrote a lot about comparisons, wrote about a lot, you know, wrote one about variety, wrote one about in a value economic series about, you know, comparative value advantage, wrote about, you know, the root of all comparison, our sense of security, how society can force us to enable it. But the last one was the real heavy hitter and the one that I wanted to wait for because I was actually very excited to write about this because of a story that I'll tell later in the post. But 
I wanted to write about pain and how that comparison, I know I'm a dark motherfucker, believe me. <clears throat> my, uh, my friend actually yelled at me for that the other day. But I wanted to write about pain and how it can enable our comparison. So I want to kind of spin this because, you know, in the comparison series, I want to take a turn of what I think, what I thought was the single most destructive comparison we can make. It's toppled society, slaughtered hundreds of millions of people, and has brought an unending railway train from hell, carrying despair and destruction onto the world ever since it was first created. And yes, it's that awesome. That is why it's the one comparison to rule them all. If my nerdery escapes you, let me provide you some insight. So graduating in the class of COVID-19, I couldn't exactly set fire to my textbook and run to the nearest bar in an act of jubilance. That would have set off my fire alarm, gotten me evicted, and I would have gone alcoholless. No fun for Sam. I was confined to my apartment. One of my best friends who was there, who I'll get to later and I mentioned uh, first in this post, could not leave her apartment because of an enhanced chance the beer virus wreaking some serious havoc on her life. Other friends were quarantined with their families and significant others. My college town was a ghost town, and I was bored as shit. But then it clicked. What does a young man do when he literally cannot leave his house, wants to celebrate the biggest accomplishment of his life, and has more free time than he knows what to do with? He decides to binge watch the whole goddamn Lord of the Rings trilogy. That's what. So for those who are unaware, Lord of the Rings has been lauded as the greatest fantasy film series of all time, which each of the three films being named as one of the greatest of the 21st century. They're ridiculously great and ridiculously long, each film having a minimum duration of three and a half hours each. It's not something you just casually throw on when you're bumming it with your girlfriend. The shit's an investment. I had been dying to watch this trilogy. Everybody told me I should watch them. Comparison might be, but anyways. I just didn't think I had the time. But when in COVID, we sometimes have these moments of clarity. So I pulled a class at Fuck It and watched them back to back to back. The thing that's especially cool of the three films is that they're all meant to be watched in that fashion. It's basically a 12-hour long film broken into three. The main character, Frodo, plays the cliché, unexpecting hero who was bestowed the Ring of Power, or the One Ring. The One Ring was created by Sauron the Necromancer. We've talked about him before, creepy, flamey guy, remember, with the eye that looks at everything. A nearly all-powerful warlord, along with ten other rings that were spread throughout Middle-earth, which is the setting of the story. But the other rings weren't the One Ring. Sauron tricked the rest of Middle-earth's rulers into wearing them. The Ring of Power had the capability of controlling all the other rings, which therefore instilled Sauron with control over the entirety of Middle-earth. He was, wait for it, the Lord of the Rings. Middle-earth naturally decided to fight back. In the Great War that fol followed, Sauron was eventually beaten and the Ring was a really lost for a really fucking long time. However, it was eventually recovered by a creature who became, creature who became known as Gollum, who killed his brother out of greed in order to get it. Oh yeah, so I should probably mention that. The One Ring is so powerful that it corrupts any living thing that touches it until that entire being's life revolves around it. So, yeah, that's, that's nice. It becomes that being's obsession, its sole purpose. It's why Gollum went batshit and killed his brother in a Cain and Abel-style fiasco. However, Gollum was eventually tricked out of it by a hobbit, a Middle-earth little person, named Bilbo Baggins, Frodo's uncle. It corrupts him, too, and makes him near immortal because of his desire and obsession to protect the Ring. Eventually, it ends up in the hands of Frodo, who swears to destroy it by throwing into Mount Doom, a giant volcano in the heart of Sauron's kingdom where it was forged, and the only place that it can be destroyed. Ain't that a kick in the dick. So, getting back to the point, basically what I'm saying is the One Ring is pretty fucking bad. It's the Great Equalizer. It levels everything in its path. Nothing matters when the One Ring is present except for the One Ring itself. So, what comparison could be the normal Earth equivalent to the One Ring, you ask? 
And I'll tell you, pain, Clubber Lang voice, pain is the one comparison to rule them all. According to the dictionary, the definition for the word pain is, quote, an emotional, mental, or physical distress or suffering, end quote. It's an awful thing. It can make us stronger, but there's no escaping the fact that it's not really fun. Which brings us to someone who I'd like to introduce you as the real Slim Shady. Eminem, or the real Slim Shady, or Marshall Mathers III, has made his career off of pain. He's easily the most brutally heinous rapper that's ever lived, although Old Dirty Bastard is up there. Another conversation for another day. Shout out to Wu-Tang Clan. After he got Dr. Dre's attention to what the legend called, quote, the most annoying song he's ever heard, end quote, which later became My Name Is, Eminem shifted his focus almost entirely to this subject, branding himself as a horrorcore and shock rapper. He's rapped about nearly every, every, nearly every person on the earth, including his friends, mother, and wife, forcing a Klan poster up the ass of Ann Coulter, putting kids all in line with an AK-47, a revolver, and a 9, shoving 9-inch nails through each one of his eyelids. The list goes on. However, all of that pales in comparison to what many consider to be his magnum opus song, Stan. It's where the slang term comes from, by the way, if you didn't know that. The song, taken off of the groundbreaking album, The Marshall Mathers LP, is about a super fan of Eminem who writes him fan mail. However, M doesn't respond to Stan, whose letters continue to get more and more disturbing. <clears throat> he talks about cheating on his girlfriend for him, gets a tattoo of M's name on his chest, and cutting himself. Eventually, Stan pulls a classic fuck it, drinks a fifth of vodka, dare me to drive, shoves his pregnant girlfriend in the trunk of his car, and drives off a bridge into a river, killing himself, his girlfriend, and their unborn child. There's a lot of things that make the song excellent. The storytelling is perhaps the greatest I've seen. The depth is impeccable. But the one thing that makes it so unforgettable is the pain that Eminem brings out of himself to tell that story and explain its depth. It's horrific. What makes it so horrific? The pain, you see. Stan pours his heart out to M, and when he doesn't answer, uses that pain and weaponizes it to inflict it on the innocent. In Bad Guy, the sequel to Stan, Stan's younger brother takes revenge on Eminem by using that same pain that was inflicted on Stan to kill himself and Eminem in the same fashion. It's the same idea all over again. Pain is universally regarded as probably the worst thing on this earth. It's manifested in things such as cancer, drug addiction, mental and physical disabilities, muscular dystrophy, suicide, our own thoughts. It's a horrible thing to use as a barometer for just about everything, unless you're a sadist who gets off to this type of shit. Yet we all do it. We all weaponize pain as some kind of lever to do something. It might not be as big as killing your pregnant girlfriend and unborn child, but we do it. We shame others and ourselves for it. We create hellish mental prisons that we reside in. We use it as a weapon to inflict pain on others and bring them down to feel what we feel. I had a big problem with this as well, but not necessarily in that sense. I always use it as more of a sick motivational thing. Like, get up bitch, you don't even know what suffering is, you don't have a reason to wuss out. Perspective from darkness, as our friend Dan Crenshaw has told us, is a good thing. My problem was I didn't have an off switch. I could never really give myself a break. I still can't, to be quite honest with you. Which brings me to my friend I referenced earlier. Pre-beer virus, as we were getting to know each other better, she told me about a series of health problems that she had, and one that was looming that could be catastrophic. It ended up not being, thankfully, but it was still something decently significant that lingered, hence her taking quarantine extra seriously when shit going started going down around last March. One reason I think I like her so much is that she reminds me a lot of my mom, and not in a weird way. I don't hesitate when telling people that my mom is without question the strongest person I've ever met in my life. Remember our discussion of hell. Hell, we talked about, is defined by chaos, the mounting uncertainty and unknowing of everything. It's living in anarchy. 
I won't get into details. My mom is the only person that I know who was, was com surrounded by complete and utter hell for much of her developmental years and much of her adult life as well, mind you, and made it out to be not only a contributing but a thriving member of society. Knowing what I know, it's absolutely mind-blowing that she's come this far and has become a remarkable person as she's become. My friend, while her situation might not be, sit might not be the same, has similar qualities. She's been around a shit ton of uncertainty growing up the medical developments being one of those elements, and has made it out. That takes balls, or ovaries, if we're being politically correct here. I remember when I was talking with her about this exact thing when I came upon the one comparison to rule them all. <clears throat> I think I was talking to her about seeing a mental health counselor, <clears throat> but that I had better problems than she did. I felt guilty taking help, especially compared with someone like her, whom I thought had gone through much more than I did. I didn't feel like I deserved it as much as other people did. Other people had bigger problems than me, right? Some people grew up in some sort of hell. I didn't. Why should I be receiving help? This is the whole sick motivational thing I was talking about earlier, by the way. My friend disagreed. Vehemently. Then she dropped the nuke. It was in a Snapchat DM, but I have it saved. I plan on printing it. It hit me like a Mike Tyson rock bottom shame-esque uppercut. Quote, One thing I don't like to do is compare pain. Everyone has different life experiences and it affects them differently. Your pain and experiences are no less than my pain and experiences. End quote. That single me message shifted by my paradigm. Because remember, what is a comparison? It's simply a perception of one's thoughts. Most of the time, it's nothing real. Pain is certainly real, but your perception of it, especially when comparing it to others, is almost always fabricated. Unless you're comparing Brad not texting you for two hours to getting cancer, then you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself, Christine. So, with my outro to the July comparison series, I guess I'm reading off a text here. So, we're going to be taking a sledgehammer to the knee of the one comparison to rule them all. It's why Gollum killed his brother. Why Stan killed himself, his girlfriend, and his child. Why Stan's brother killed him in a fictitious M&M. Why certain societies have been toppled. Why hundreds of millions of people have died. Why hundreds of millions still suffer. To do this, we need to understand why pain is the one comparison to rule them all, the most prominent ways in which we use it, and how we stop doing it in order to avoid the inevitable amount of further pain that will come later. Now, J.R.R. Tolkien sing the chorus. One comparison to rule them all. One comparison to find them. One comparison to bring them all, and in the darkness, bind them. That was from Lord of the Rings, if you, if you care. <laughs> so, the comparison of pain, the one to rule them all, is a deep topic, a personal topic, a highly individualized topic. It's incredibly hard to condense and decipher. And that's what makes it so dangerous to use as a comparison. Remember the definition. The, the representing of one thing or person is to or like another, end quote. The comparison of pain is especially volatile because of its inherent personality, which leads us into the first section as to why this comparison is the one comparison to rule them all. Suffering, as I covered in my intro, is where pain is derived from. We have to extract our pain from a source of suffering or else pain would not exist. Suffering, in addition to death and taxes, is probably one of the few things we can all agree that humans experience during their life. It comes in buckets and in drops, and it's every part of our lives in some form or fashion. Life is suffering. At least that's a point that the Buddhists make. In all forms of Buddhism, the brass tacks of the religion are tied down to what is known as the Four Noble Truths. At the core of those four noble truths is a simple principle. Misery, pain, and suffering are inescapable in the material world in which we live. Therefore, according to Buddhism, 
The only way to alleviate our suffering, and the suffering of the world, is to practice detachment and mindfulness in order to free our minds from the confines of the world in which we live. Unfortunately, not a lot of us are monks in Southeast Asia. We don't have the luxury of escaping our modern American culture unless we try to take on Bear grills for the superiority of the wild man live off the land guy stereotype. I don't recommend trying it, you'll probably lose. I envy the Buddhists from that standpoint. There's a reason why their religion is still standing today and in very strong fashion. They've escaped the inevitable suffering of human existence, or at least they've tricked themselves out of it, right? But hey, every religion operates on faith to each his own. But I think they hit it right on the head. Whenever you attach yourself emotionally to something, you invest in it. That's the life-defining principle of value economics. But whenever there's a hiccup, whenever something wrong happens, the effects on our psyche can be catastrophic. It's the reason why parents of drug-addicted children get divorced at almost a 20% higher clip than most normal folks. It's why we cry at funerals. When you invest in something and it doesn't work out, that shit hurts. The reason why this point is important is because something like suffering is a terrible metric on which to judge yourself against other people. It's ubiquitous. We all experience it. It's like comparing yourself to someone on the basis of your breathing or not. If you're breathing, you're alive. If you're not, you're dead. 2 plus 2 equals 4. If you're judging someone on whether they feel pain, you're simply, unless you're an aforementioned monk of some sort, not using a proper metric to judge the quality of your life. Bad metrics pilfer our world and all their trashiness. We just don't notice them that much. ACT scores are one that have gotten a lot of press recently, as they should have. Another one that might shock you is GDP. GDP, or gross domestic product, is the output of economic goods and services that are produced, put out by a country within a given time period, usually a quarter, and deduced to a dollar amount. This number is routinely hyped up, usually by conservative politicians and their constituents, as a good measure of the overall health of the economy. But is it? Andrew Yang doesn't think so. He thinks it's awful, and I agree with him. Why is it awful? Because it's a bad metric. It really doesn't show anything about the health of the individuals in our society. Think back to our friend, friend Vilfredo Pareto, and I'm not just naming that name to name it. So Vilfredo Pareto was an Italian farmer of peas and, and later an economist. He came up with the 80-20 principle or the universal natural law, the Pareto principle. And according to that law, 20% of the workload of near everything carries the weight for the rest of whatever the rest of the group is. Our economy is heavily focused on tech. It's nearly single-handedly carried us throughout this quasi-beer virus recovery that we've seen in the last month. But the problem is, not a, lot of work, not a lot of us work for tech firms. We don't get to reap the benefits directly. Remember, we're not a part of that enterprise. We don't get the lion's share of that reward, at least not directly. For example, the GDP per capita, the amount of the average output allocated to each person of the country, of the average United States citizen is around $62,700. And that is an extraordinary number. We're one of the richest countries to exist over the course of human history. It's nothing short of an economic miracle, at least on paper. Let's contract that to the, contrast that to the number of Jeff, with Jeff Bezos, the wealthiest man in the world at the helm of the, arguably the greatest company that's existed since the early 1900s, Amazon. Earlier in the week that I wrote, th wrote this article, he made $13 billion in a single day from rises in Amazon stock prices, to which he owns a fuck ton. His net worth at the end of that day was estimated to be around $189.3 billion. Now let's contract that with GDP per capita. Or contrast that, rather. Jeff Bezos, if you did the math, is worth three three. Wait, hold on, it's worth... So, yeah, I'm reading this off the table. Jeff Bezos, if you did the math, is worth 
3,019,138.76 million Americans in terms of economic value. Sorry, I butchered that. I don't think that's a very good way to judge a person's overall worth. It's too easy to slip into the absolutes. I'd love to see the Marxists go to town on that one. But that's exactly what Yang is talking about. Electric semi-trucks are great for GDP. But how about the 4 million truck drivers that will immediately get dispensed and thrown to the side when the technology is adopted? What's more important? Where do our values lie? The comparison of pain enables two things, superiority or victimhood. If you use it as a metric, you're either on the side of righteousness or on the side of destruction. You're either the side who makes the electric semi-trucks or the truck drivers that he uses to hit them. Hitler used the quote-unquote suffering of the Aryan race put on by people who he viewed as inferior, blacks, disabled people, homosexuals among them, to engage in a wildly radical superiority trip. Anarchists and opportunists are using this suffering as an excuse to loot small businesses and destroy Portland, Oregon. Vladimir Lenin did the same thing with Russia back in 1917, although to a much serious, more serious degree. Neither is good. Neither is constructive. It all comes down to one simple fact. Life is suffering. It is a fact of life. It is part of the human experience. We all die and pay taxes unless you're a Mitt Romney-esque person. We all breathe. We all eat and shit. And we all suffer and feel pain. Suffering and feeling pain sucks. We should not make it worse by weaponizing it to tip the scales in our favor. It's counterproductive, and it's dangerous. The second reason why pain is the one comparison to rule them all is that it dilutes your life experiences as either positive or negative things, when they aren't inherently either. A good example of this comes from our friend Charlemagne the God, the radio host and the author of the sensational book Black Privilege. One of the lessons in his book is called There Are No Losses, Only Lessons. A common metaphor among rappers and people immersed in rap culture, it's easy to get lost in the shuffle of things. But Charlemagne breaks it down incredibly well. The basic premise is that only quote-unquote losses that you have in your life come when you don't try to learn something from them. A quote-unquote lesson. Throw in a bunch of hilarious stories about his own misfortune and you get one hell of a cocktail that provides an excellent point of reference. Obviously when your girlfriend cheats on you or you lose your job, that shit sucks. But what sucks even more is staying in a perpetual state of suck by not going to a coronavirus-friendly bar and talking to women or perusing through Indeed looking for another job. There is no worse prison than the one you put yourself in. That's the enablement of victimhood that we talked about earlier. This cuts you off from experiencing anything, whether that could be good or bad. The only way to not feel pain or to learn something from that pain is to do nothing, to be a bum, a loser, to sit on the sidelines and not pursue meaning while the rest of your life zips by in a haze. When there is no pain, there is no growth. Experiences provide both. To lose experience is to lose any hope for meaning. Experiences are neither good nor bad inherently. Like most things, they are just things. Tools to be used in a constructive or non-constructive fashion. Now, I want to make a point that I'm absolutely not advocating for mindless positivity, which is the state of having a positive mind thing about e mindset about every fucking thing just because it makes you feel better. That's not positive at all. That's delusion. It's a cheat of your own experiences of what life throws at you. When your dog dies, be sad. Cry. Yell at the world. Feel sorry for yourself. But only for a little bit. Let yourself feel emotions. They're beautiful and innate things. Celebrate them by feeling them to the degree that they should be felt. But don't let them control you. Don't let your fast feeling brain hijack your slow thinking brain. That's when the shit starts to go sideways. You start to become paralyzed in fear and sadness about getting another dog. Then you start to hate on other people for having dogs and experiencing joy with them while your dog is still dead. You become bitter and resentful. This is why I have a gigantic problem with talks of issues that are quote-unquote systemic in our country most recently and specifically being the communication of institutional racism. 
While it is accurate to represent the sins of our country, especially towards black folks, and the failure of our country to live up to the values of the Constitution and Declaration of Independence, I don't think it's fair to automatically demean a present group because of sins of the past. We've spent the last month talking about comparisons, or these posts, rather, talking about comparisons, right? What the fuck do people think is going to happen when they constantly hammer into people's brains that they're going to do nothing but foul behind the eight ball no matter what they do? Imagine telling that to a child, in this case a child of color. You're lesser. You're going to be behind no matter what. No matter what you do and how good you aspire to be, it will never be good enough. The game is rigged. You can't make it out. You're stuck forever because the system won't let you free yourself. It's a shame that this happens as much as it does, and it isn't related just relegated just as ethnicity. The same thing is happening right now in predominantly white Appalachian communities right now. They're getting corroded and eaten alive from the inside because of despair, drug addiction, economic disempowerment, and hopelessness. The people of these communities are shit all over constantly, victimized by people in the media and other venues who want to make a cheap buck off of capitalizing on opportunism presented by their misfortunes. They're not even given the chance of hope to get out of their situation. They're simply told to stay put, to shut up and obey, to hope and pray don't, that opiates don't seize control, hijack their lives, and cast them into hell. Their pain is constantly weaponized as an inherently bad experience. They're given no room to breathe, to grow. They're constantly demeaned as the cost of a broken system, where no one escapes. The only thing is, that's not true. Just ask my mom, my friend, J.D. Vance, or probably a quarter of the people that go to state schools in places like Michigan and Ohio. There are plenty of examples of people beating the hell they grew up in. But people don't talk about it because they're too busy comparing the pain of experiences to others and cutting off their own opportunities for growth. I have a lot of family that falls in this category. It's sick, and it's wrong. For a bit of lighter reading, I went through a less dark experience recently. About 15 months after my dog died last spring, my family started engaging in talks about getting another dog. This is last summer, mind you. My mom works from home half, works from home half the time, and during the lockdown, she was relegated there full-time. But she still had a lot on her plate. My sister can get on her nerves more than anyone I know. She may be autistic, but she's far from stupid. She's one of the most innately smart people I've ever met in my life. She knows exactly what buttons to push to set my mom off. The loneliness and sense without a purpose because of her job being furloughed began to take a toll on my mom, which led to a strong push for a new dog. I was hesitant, to say the least. I wasn't ready to let go. I was afraid it would diminish the life of my old dog in favor of my new one, to put a band-aid on the crack in my emotional dam. I didn't think it was a good idea. But I didn't have a choice. I was moving out in a month and it was important to my family, so who was I to say no? So we ended up adopting one from a local farm in Michigan that breeds them. My heart dropped to my stomach when I realized that my mom had picked out the exact same breed and gender as my previous dog. It was like looking in a mirror. I didn't know if I could take it. I was nervous as hell the day that my mom and sister went to go get him. But you know what? It all turned out okay. My new dog is awesome. He's completely different from my old dog. Their personalities cannot be more opposite. They may look the same, but they're incredibly different. Was it hard to adjust initially? Of course it was. But did those feelings disappear? They did. But only because I allowed them to pass. When you dwell, you give yourself the opportunity to sink in your emotion a own pile of emotional shit. Experience experiences can suck. A lot of them do. But they don't have to be that way forever. I learned how to both celebrate the life of my old dog while simultaneously learning to love something else. Life is beautiful, as Sway Calloway once said. There are no losses, only lessons. Almost nothing is as good or as good or bad inherently. It's all about what you morph it and morph it into. Pain makes us forget this. 
When we get swept into our own emotional biases, we can send ourselves down an Alice in Wonderland-esque rabbit hole of further pain and misery and suffering. When you experience something that you deem bad and compare it to others who didn't, of course you're going to feel like garbage. Their dog probably didn't just die. Maybe their grandma doesn't have the beer virus. They're your experiences. When you refuse to own them, you enable your own suffering by further attaching yourselves to them. The third reason that pain is the one comparison to rule them all is that it discounts the individual and their differences in favor of your own individualism and your own differences. We've been talked about this before. But this is different. When you take another person's pain and, most likely in this scenario, minimize it to favor your own, you're constantly, consequently cheating them out of their experiences. You say that they're lesser and that your experience of pain and suffering are so much more than theirs. The thing is, they actually might be. You could be right. But the problem is you don't know. There's no way you could know. You're comparing yourself with an incomparable sample. Human beings are deeply complex creatures. When you make that leap, when you cross that boundary, you don't become superior or a victim. You just become a raging narcissist, only concerned about you over everyone else. The world revolves around you and your pain and your suffering. Nothing else matters. Well, how selfish of you, you fucking narcissist. How dare you think that no one's pain and suffering matters and that yours is superior? Is your breathing superior? Is your heart rate superior? Is your death superior? Unless you're Sylvester Stallone, the answer to every one of those questions is, except for in that one very specific case, the last one should be no. Why? Because everyone experiences it. You can't compare it. You simply can't. When you do, you only unlock a Pandora's box of more suffering to open up and kick you in the dick. Only in these scenarios, hope only in these scenarios, hope does not stay in the box while the rest of the vices of humanity escape to wreak havoc on the world. Hope dissipates. If you don't get the story, hope is the only thing that stayed in Pandora's box once Pandora opened it. It becomes as unreal as everything else seems, just like in the examples we named above. Pain is an awful metric to use for almost anything, because when something hurts you as bad as pain does, you will most likely need to do something equally as drastic to rid yourself of it, or at least to give yourself the delusion of ridding yourself for it, usually at the expense of someone else who didn't do anything to deserve that reciprocal pain in the first place. That enablement of our own comparisons of pain is what we now need to focus on. You don't want to open Pandora's box. Just don't go there. Trust me. Wait, wasn't it a pithos? Who gives a shit? Let's keep going. When the Titan Prometheus stole fire from the Greek god of the forge, Hephaestus, Hephaestus bestowed an odd curse onto man, the first woman, who went by the name of Pandora. See, I told you that women were all the root of all the evil on this planet. No, it's just my inner victim talking, so let's keep going. So, Hephaestus sends Pandora down to punish Prometheus for giving fire to mankind. But she doesn't come alone. Zeus, the king of the gods, decides to give Prometheus a, or Pandora a box slash pithos with only instructions as to not open it, no matter what the cost. Well, spoiler alert, she opens the damn thing. She can't help herself. Things fly out of the box. Plague, worry, envy, crime, hatred, etc. However, Pandora is able to trap one thing inside before it flies away to fuck mankind's shit. Hope. Kind of a sick bitch that Zeus. Why tell you this story? One, I like Greek mythology, get over it. Two, it's a powerful lead into my next section. Pandora, even though most would say she screwed from the start, didn't have to open the box. She didn't. Adam and Eve didn't have to eat the forbidden fruit. Apollo Creed didn't have to fight Ivan Drago. And we all know how it turned out for those folks. They ended up as a pariah. 
cast out of the garden and beaten to a lifeless pulp in front of his best friend, father figure, and wife, and on live television to boot. In most scenarios, we bring the suffering on ourselves. That was the point of the post that I had mentioned earlier. Society may help us enable our insecurity, but we give them that pathway by letting our internal sense of security become thrown out of balance in the first place. The same is true with pain, the one comparison to rule them all. As with any other comparison as we've discussed, the genesis of them all begins within. The first big way we enable our comparison of pain is by something I like to call, and we like to call now, emotional overcompensation. Basically, the way we define emotional overcompensation is when our own emotional state is damaged, we tend to have our own emotions fire back in an even more aggressive fashion to do two things. One, hurt that person. Two, hurt that person enough so it makes our pain justified. The fast-feeling brain completely overrides the slow-thinking brain. The sad thing is, this happens a ton, way more than it should. But emotions aren't rational. They never will be. They're deeply embedded into our lizard brains. They have no off switch. In these types of emotionally adversarial situations, we tend to overstate our own emotional trauma and understate others. That's where the shit hits the fan and splatters all over the walls. I think the biggest reason that we do this is confirmation bias. Confirmation bias, as we discussed previously, occurs when we seek out new information that only justifies what we already believe to be true. This can be especially dangerous when dealing with pain. Why? Well, because when we're pissed off at someone for having, having us hurt, or hurt us, our lizard brains default to confirmation bias to seek shit out like the predator that will destroy that person and attempt to make up for your own pain that you suffered at the hands of that person. I remember specifically an incident where I was on the slightly more positive side of things. It was the beginning of my senior year of college, and I was waiting in line with two of my friends for a bar that I wanted to go to, or they wanted to go to, rather. The place was packed. We had been in line at least 45 minutes. But we were almost at the front of the line, and I was ready to go in and drown myself in a whiskey and Diet Coke. And then the Kentucky boys rolled in. A recurring joke that us Midwesterners, specifically Ohioans, have is that basically anything south of Columbus, where I went to school, is basically Kentucky. There's a whole lot of nothing going down there. There are a couple of decent-sized city, like, cities like Cincinnati and Dayton, but it's all basically all farms and smaller towns. Went to school at Miami University? Kentucky. Played high school football for St. Xavier? Kentucky. Haven't any address south of Bexley? Kentucky. We had just played the University of Cincinnati in football earlier that day. We kicked the living shit out of them. It was awesome. But remember, anything south of Bexley is automatically Kentucky. And that's where the Kentucky boys rolled in. There were about four of them, and just about as Kentucky as can be. Echo Unlimited white graphic tees, curly blonde hair that was trimmed into a faux hawk, pocket chains, oversized fake Jordan 11s, the whole shebang. The Kentucky boys were mad that their team got curb stomped by my team. So, in their frustration and toxic immaturity, they cut the line right behind us. Now, if you've ever been around a college town long enough, that's just about as big of a sin as you can imagine. Wait in line for 45 minutes and then you just cut in, how about you blow me instead? Like most scenarios like this, I had made conversation with people behind me about sh how shitty our mutual waiting situation was. They were nice people. They didn't deserve to be cut in line by these assholes. But these dudes were sauced out of their mind, probably as some ch cheap gas station rum they picked up on the way on I-71 after re they refreshed their porn selection. Sauté gentlemen from quasi-Kentucky can be scary. But I dealt with people like this before. I was confident in myself. So I turned around and said, Hey guys, that's not cool. Don't cut in line. Come on now, wait in the back like everyone else. That was it. Nothing more, nothing less. But oh, let me tell you, lead Kentucky boy didn't like that one bit. He was a wily one. The predator eyes dilated and turned on them immensely. Then he uttered the most hilariously Kentucky phrase he could have uttered in that moment. I'll fuck you up, man. You think you're better than me? Think you're tough? Come on and do something. 
So I just did the thing that I do in this situation and laughed and turned around with my friends. But the insults kept flying. Lee Kentucky Boy was riding this one out hard. I smiled that I decided and wanted to have some fun. I leaned over to my friend, whispered, watch this, turned around again, and hit him right in where the wannabe Kentucky Boys hurt the most. Look, man, I know you have a small penis. I get it. I'm sorry. But just because you're inadequate down there doesn't mean you have to take it out on me and the rest of these folks. Just do the right thing and go to the back of the line, okay? And then lead Kentucky boy snapped. He lunged at me and was held back by the other Kentucky boy friends. The people behind me parted and I stepped up to confront him in case he got off the leash. His one friend let out a couple, I'm sorry, man, I'm so sorry, my boy's really drunk, he just wanted to get in the bars, mans. And I told him that it was fine, but to get control of him or I'd have to get the police to take care of him. And by this time, a top cop had come over. He asked me if I did anything, and I told him that me and the other people were getting harassed by some quasi-drunk Kentucky assholes who'd cut the line. The people around me in line agreed. The officer did his duty, made sure everything was okay, talked down the Kentucky boy, and then walked away. Everything seemed fine. But then, about two minutes later, I felt a big tug around the front of my neck. I immediately grabbed for it, but nothing was there. Lee Kentucky boy and his Kentucky cronies had stashed, snatched my two chains, dropped them broken on the ground, and ran across the street. They were yelling at me, giving a couple of all fuck you ups the finger and asking me to fight. I calmly pointed the same officer about them, called over something to him about his penis size, laughed, and waved goodbye as they ran away like as wannabes like this do when they face actual trouble. Lee Kentucky Boy was a victim of his own emotional conversation and stupidity, to be completely honest. He let one thing that he was mad about, not being able to cut in line and get told to move to the back, get him so riled up that it eventually ended up ruining the night for him and his boys. He emotionally overcompensated, and he paid the price for it. However, I will say that men are overly insecure about the size of their penis are quite irritable gentlemen. I was one for a while, but I've learned to be experienced not to be. TMI, I'm sorry. The second way in a big fashion we enable our comparisons of pain is through assuming omniscience. That we know everything about a situation when we really don't. This is another huge one that we're all guilty of probably multiple times over. It's a clear violation of the second don't, don't be ignorant. Yet we still do it, because it makes us feel better, usually superior in this case, that we know something that other people don't, that we're destined for success, and they're destined for failure, particularly by their own demise. If only one could be such a self-righteous asshole. Truth be told, I was one of those self-righteous assholes. I would work myself to the bone on near everything, and still do, and expect people to do the same. When I failed to realize that, there are un that that's an unrealistic ex expectation of people, Comparisons of any sorts are mostly fabricated by perception, not reality. How was I to possibly know what was going on in this person's life? A big one in this category for me was a specific incident that also happened in college. I hated when people skipped class. Hated it. I still do. My justification was that you, or probably more accurately your parents, worked their ass off for years for you to get a, a great education and you pulled this bullshit? Nah man, not cool. There was one specific incident in which it bothered me to agree I hadn't experienced before. It was a guy that I played high school football against. He was a rock star. The shit. He never showed up to one class we had together. It was a my, one of my entrepreneurship classes taught by a man who I respect highly. Literally all he asked was you showed up. I thought it was incredibly disrespectful to rebel against that order. I looked this guy up on the internet to see what, he, what right he had to be such so pompous about. It turns out that this kid dad, kid's dad had killed himself. Hung himself in his garage door. I never felt so horrible in my life. I couldn't believe I had succumbed to the second don at the expense of this poor dude's life. He was going through hell, and I hadn't even given him the courtesy of the benefit of the doubt. There are similar incidents of this. 
The kid that shows up late to school with ratty clothes is also probably abused and neglected. The girl who cakes her face in double application makeup and dresses in too tight clothes is probably one step away from shattering her entire self-image. The high school quarterback with the overbearing dad trying to get a college scholarship is one bad throw away from a complete personality fallout. Never assume that you know everything. Never be ignorant to the possibilities. There's a reason why I end every post with open your mind and every podcast with open your mind. When your mind is open, you can see more possibilities. You can get outside yourself. The reason why the letter I is small is because that you are small. I am small. Only when you minimize your own ego can you look past the bigger picture. When you don't, that only makes an ass out of you and me. But I'm Ching, again. The third way we enable our comparison of pain is by empowering that superiority or victimhood we talked about in the first section and weaponizing it. This might seem contradictory to some, considering what I had to do about learning and adapting or turning losses into lessons. But this is not the case here. There's nothing wrong with adapting to your failures and learning from mistakes. There's nothing wrong with having a chip on your shoulder. However, there is something wrong with turning that chip on your shoulder into a block of wood. That weighs you down and transforms you into your something else entirely. A big and hilarious example of this victimhood side of the spectrum is Jesse Smollett. Jesse Smollett was a child acting star who rose to gigantic stardom on the Fox hit show Empire and was lauded as a groundbreaking actor for portraying the first gay black character on television. His career was on the up. But that wasn't enough for Smollett. He still compared his pain of not being at the top and not getting enough attention as he wanted, which kind of happens when you co-star along Terrence Howard and Taraji P. Henson, but I digress, to everyone else. So Smollett decided to pull a little stunt to get that attention. In the most bizarre trip to a subway at 2 o'clock in the morning you'll ever hear, Smollett was told by two men in MAGA hats, this is MAGA country, was told homophobic and racial slurs, beaten to hell, had bleach porn on him, and had a noose tied around his neck. Pretty horrific, if you ask me. But the thing was, it was a lie. All of it. A hoax, to use the vernacular of then-President Trump. But a hoax it was. Smollett made up the whole thing. The two dudes that quote-unquote beat him up were twin bodybuilders from Africa and were paid by Jussie Smollett to rough up poor little Jussie Smollett up a little bit so he'd become the media darling he always wanted to be. Smollett made an ass out of himself and a mockery of anyone who had ever been the misfortune of being in, wait for it, a real situation such as the one he fabricated. A truly heinous bastard he is. All because Jussie weaponized the pain he felt about not being a big enough star and getting enough attention. He only had to degrade those who actually felt pain and suffering in order to do so. A big example of the superiority side of the spectrum is former cult leader David Koresh. David Koresh was raised in Texas to a deadbeat mom. He was a lonely child and was placed in a special education program due to his dyslexia and poor study habits. Koresh eventually dropped out of high school and joined the Branch Davidians, a radical sector of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, dedicating his life to the religion and eventually becoming its leader. A lot of people didn't account for one thing, though. David Koresh was a seriously fucked up whack job. He engaged in polygamy, fathering 16 children with several women, a good of the portion of them were presumed to be underage to make it worse, to become the quote-unquote new world leaders. He reportedly to have physically sexually and sexually abused them and a lot of other kids. He believed himself to be a figure like King David, the warrior king of the Bible, or Cyrus, the king that formed the, Persian, the first Persian empire, hence the name David Koresh. Koresh translates to Cyrus. He believed that he was the final prophet, destined to bring birth to the second coming of Jesus Christ and end the world in apocalyptic fashion. And then Waco happened. In what turned out to be one of the most atrocious events to happen on American soil in the 20th century, 
Koresh held himself and other Branch Davidians inside their fortress after the ATF pressed him about allegations of child abuse. When they pressed further, Koresh and others opened fire on them, killing six, six agents. A siege then persisted for 51 days, which Koresh used to write fervent religious dogma before the ATF busted in to take Koresh. The stronghold be soon began to catch fire, and 79 Branch Davidians perished in the, in the blaze. 21 of them were children under the age of 16. Koresh took the easy way out. He had his right-hand man shoot him in the head before turning the gun on himself. David Koresh leveraged and weaponized the pain that he felt as a child and the pain that he felt of being pariah of modern society into becoming an effectively a more efficient Charles Manson. It's truly horrifying that these people exist. It gives a bad name to the folks who actually get constructive out, something constructive out of religion. But the point is, we need to recognize how we enable our comparison to pain, the one comparison to rule them all, in order to cut them off of their roots. That's what we're going to be doing to cap off, cap off this article. Oh, and for anyone who's cu curious about my chains, I know you are, aren't, so humor me, $18 on Amazon for both of them. They're fake as hell, but look real as hell. Capitalism, as I said earlier in one of my podcasts, is something else. The point of my talk about comparisons has been to educate people on the imperfections of their own minds. It's something that we and I and a lot of us do to give, our, give them some legitimacy, which they have none. The lies that they could potentially be telling themselves that are based on perceptions that may or may not be true. I am not perfect in dealing with comparisons. Some of you are probably ahead of me, and that's great, because, you just, because just because your mind isn't perfect doesn't mean that you can't train it to work better in your favor. There are three ways to counteract the three ways that enable our pain comparison. I believe that these are the most three most effective ways to cut something off at the source before they manifest to do some serious damage to our sense of being. The first way we counteract the one comparison to rule them all is to simply detach and think slower. In doing this, you will counteract the emotional overcompensating that your brain does when confronted by a highly painful scenario. A lot of people run from doing this because they don't want to feel the pain before it sets in. It's an understandable reaction. You don't want to keep your head on the hot, hand on the hot stove after you burn yourself, and you shouldn't. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't get burned once a little bit once to know that you need to adjust how to interact with the stove. The fast feeling brain is the most powerful thing that we possess within our physiology, and it's not even close. It learns so quickly and reacts so fast that it's impossible to override it subconsciously. You must make a blatant effort to control it before it controls you. The worst possibility is succumbing to emotional overcompensation and adding like Lee Kentucky guy. And you don't want to be Lee Kentucky guy. He was a jackass. Instead, take a deep breath and detach. Remember our friend Jocko Willink. You are incapable of seeing the whole field of battle when you're only staring down the line, narrow line of sight. Sometimes, in order to accomplish the mission, you need to ex exit that line of vision. You need to detach. You need to be able to see things in their holistic points of view. Ever notice something that when you feel a strong emotion, good or bad? It has this weird habit of consumption. Anger and pain feel bad, like you're welling up with boiling water. Laughter and feelings of love and acceptance feel wonderful, like you're welling up with warm bath water. Emotions hijack your entire bodily system. Chemicals are released, and reactions happen within your own body that are impossible for your conscious comprehension to notice. They're that powerful. This is where your slow thinking brain must come into play. Before you well up, interject, your own your own interject into your own despair or bliss. Do an internal analysis and scan of your psyche. Is this what you're feeling real? Is it healthy? Do you need to chickity check yourself before you riggedy wreck yourself, ice cube voice? The reason why you want to interject, even if it's more optimistic, a more optimistic emotion, is that the act of consumption is bad. People do shitty ass things while in love too. 
Gina Montana went into insane state of incest-fueled and murderous psychosis after she lost her lover. Vito Corleone let his daughter get abused by her husband from all angles because of his love for an Italian tradition of family. Jelaine Maxwell covered up and helped facilitate hundreds of underage girls getting sex, sex trafficked because she loved power and Jeffrey Epstein. Sometimes you really need to dig down within yourself and ask the hard questions. Remember, pain should never be used as a barometer. It's simply too innate to within us all to be used as one. When in doubt, detach. The second way we counteract the one comparison to rule them all is simply use more compassion and empathy in your interactions with others. This is a direct counter to the, no pun intended, ignorance of the second don't. Don't be ignorant. When you use your compassion and empathy more, off, more often in your interactions, you begin to pick up some things you wish you wouldn't if those valve of emotional outreach had been shut off. You'll start to notice that, as you do this more, more people will open up to you. I don't toot my own horn about much, but one thing I will say I do quite well is showing compassion and empathy. My mom and I joke a lot, a lot that our weird and fucked up people, my mom doesn't say the fuck word Charlie ever curses, people at the most random places and times seem out, seem, somehow simply find our way to us and vent. It's almost like a sixth sense. We're just naturally that way with people. We're very open and have, we have ways of creating ways where others can do the same. But I'll take it one step further. I think there's little more to it than just showing emotional vulnerability. I might sound like I'm going against the second don't, but I don't think that I fucking am. You need to admit that you know absolutely fucking nothing. Nothing. Nil. Shit. You see, the second note condemns blatant ignorance. It condemns that you don't know that you don't know anything about something, but you don't even attempt to pursue the knowledge to attempt that you understand it. However, when you adopt the mindset that might not know shit about something or something, someone or something, that gives you a tremendous opportunity to grow that understanding. You're starting from square one. You have to experience this person or thing anew, away from any biases or judgment that could conflict you as to who or what this person or thing actually is. Pain works the exact same way. You can't go in with preconceived notions about it. Pain is ubiquitous, remember? Everyone feels it. Everyone knows it. But everyone feels and knows it differently. You're not reading off a script. You're, you're performing an improv sketch. The best improv comics can go into any scenario and make it work. That is what you, you must do in order to create an avenue to eliminate the one comparison to rule them all. You must show compassion and empathy by admitting your unintentional ignorance, and then by doing your best to meet the person where they are and help them understand and help to understand them. Only then can pain be healed. Only then will their suffering be justified. The third and final way to counteract the one comparison to rule them all is something that I like to call remembering your smallness. To illustrate, let's go a familiar route. I believe that you think there's a Wolf of Wall Street quote for every possible scenario you encounter in life, and one sticks out to me in particular. In the very beginning of the film, after the flashback sequence, Jordan Belfort, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, is headed to... For is headed to his first day as a stockbroker on Wall Street. He's excited, pumped up, ready to become a big swinging dick, the whole shebang. However, his hopes get bludgeoned by his boss in hilarious fashion as soon as he walks into the door. Quote, You are lower than pond scum. And he was. He was an entry-level trader at one of the hottest firms on Wall Street. Ever hear of what happens to young professionals when they go into extremely high finance? They get thrown into a wood shepherd and then are told to bathe in vinegar. They are nothing but the hounds and lapdogs of the big swinging dicks. They're small. They're irrelevant. They're nothing. But that doesn't mean you need to act small. Remembering your smallness is my weird term for staying humble. Always remember to know what was going on around you. Never feel like you're above anyone or below anyone, especially on a metric that's dangerous, unethical, and wrong. You're not. It simply doesn't work that way. When you're humble, 
When you remember your smallness, you can observe things that others normally cannot. You can make sure that you're doing your part to control the pain in a way that is not only contributory to your success, but contributory to the success of those around you. Jesse Smollett and David Koresh went wrong because they thought they were not small. They thought they were larger than everyone else because of the pain they felt, and that proved to be their undoing. There are going to be 8 billion people on this little blue dot of ours soon. There have been billions that have come before, and there will be billions after you. You are an insignificant speck of dust in the endless film, of, film reel of human history. You're nothing in the grand scheme of things. I hate to break it to the Branch Davidians, but David Koresh probably didn't help procreate the kid who would become Jesus. Sorry to shit in your cornflakes. Hint, I'm not. Don't make a mountain out of a molehill. Don't pretend that you're above or below people because of some elevated sense of self-righteousness because of pain elevation. There is no nobility in being an oppressor or the oppressed. None. Remember their smallness. In doing the comparison series, I learned a lot about human nature. We're very driven creatures. We want to be the best. We want to... We want to consistently achieve and aspire and ascend. It's a beautiful thing to see. But we must never succumb to the comparison to rule them all. Pain, and use it as a tool to enable either our empowerment or our victimhood. Comparisons constantly surround us. They constantly impose themselves on us, threatening our mental well-being, sanity, and stability. We must cling to ourselves and those that enforce our true selves. For only then can we feed off the, fend off the beast and find solace within ourselves. We must embrace our flaws and our imperfections. If you don't, they'll consume and destroy you. And that's when Jessica Simpson sings the chorus. So thank you everyone for bearing with me. I appreciate it. I think this is a really important topic because pain is everywhere. Pain is ubiquitous and life is suffering. So think about that. Apply it to your own life. Do whatever the fuck you do after you listen to this podcast. Own the day. Open your mind. Thanks for listening. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself Think about the shit and I think it well How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?